Sunday morning, another time to get together and to worship and praise and sing and hear, be filled, be changed. The way we met on Saturday, I like the way Tom put this, to have our compass recalibrated uh, each and every week as we come and hear uh, and sing to God. Um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do this each and every Sunday. And I, I sometimes can't even believe that I get to do this still. Two years, two years since the first time I think I did this preaching thing. And uh, I still wake up in the morning on the days I get to preach and I think, I can't believe I get to do this. This is so cool. So I'm excited. The text today is from Luke chapter 11. Uh, we're in verse 14. We're continuing our trek through the, through the book of Luke. And the text today is, um, well, like many of them, kind of a gut punch. It's kind of a gut punch, and, and I think you're going to notice that even more so uh, today and over the next few weeks. Chapter 11 and chapter 12, are, Jesus is not mincing words. Jesus is not um, being, uh, what's the word, politically correct. But Jesus is being real. He's being honest. He's being very, very like himself, very true. And so it's been very convicting for me, and I hope it is for you too. I hope the Spirit works today as, as He has been doing in me as I've been studying the text. But before we get there, um, as you know, we've been sitting in chapter 11 for a while, for like an enormous amount of time. We've been sitting through chapter 11, focusing on prayer, focusing on the Lord's Prayer. And so anytime you do that, it's very, very easy to kind of forget the train of thought that Luke has been really trying to take us through as he's given us the story account of Jesus' life. There is a train of thought within each and every gospel account, and every time we sit in one for a while, which that was good, it was fruitful, it was awesome, I believe it did a lot of good in within our body, but it's always easy to forget what Luke is trying to do. So I want to take us through real quick, briefly through the book of Luke, bring out some of the key topics as it pertains to today's text. If you remember back in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 4, uh, and, and you'll see these scriptures on the back of your handout. And if you don't know where the handout is, it's right back on that back table right back there. But Luke chapter 1, verse 4, the aim, right? The aim of this entire account, the aim of this entire book was what? It was what? Do you remember? Verse 4, it was for him, meaning Theophilus, the one in whom Luke was writing to, it was for him to know the exact truth about the things that he we has been taught. To know the truth was the aim, the aim was for Theophilus to have this truth of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished firmly planted in the heart of Theophilus. And by way of implication, as we read through it, it's the Holy Spirit's aim for that to happen to us. To have the truth firmly planted in us in such a way that it would actually firmly set our feet on really solid ground. That is what truth does, after all. It keeps you safe keeps you safe from the lies and temptations of the evil one, so long as we keep it, so long as we guard it, so long as we treasure that truth, it will keep you safe from the lies of the enemy, it'll keep you safe from the lies of the world, it'll keep you focused and grounded in who Christ is, so long as you guard it. Moving on into chapter 4, we see Jesus putting this into practice. Jesus is putting this into practice as he defeats the enemy and doing what the first Adam could not do, and he, de he defeats the enemy by not being succumbing to the temptations of the evil one. He's not succumbing to the lies of the evil one. How does he do that? With the word of God. With the word of God, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, he said to the evil one three or four times. As it is written, he was grounded in the truth. He was grounded in the truth, and he was able to defeat the lies of the enemy, which is it's exactly what the first Adam did not do. Moving on to chapter 6, we see that Luke moves into Jesus and his teachings, Sermon on the Mount, right? And namely, we find, we find ourselves hearing from Jesus that there's two types of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who bear fruit, those who don't bear fruit, those who are poor in spirit and those who thirst for righteousness that they don't have of their own. And he ends, it, he ends that chapter with saying that 
uh, we have Jesus pointing us to this idea of hearing him with a capital H. Hearing Jesus with a capital H, hearing his words. And so we have Luke pointing us to the truth. We have Jesus pointing us to his words. And there's a parallel there. He says, everyone who hears my words with a capital H and does them, he is like a man building his house upon the rock. And anyone who does not is like building his house upon the sand. So Jesus is saying that anyone who would hear his truth, his words, the truth, you would be like a house firmly rooted, firmly planted on rock-solid foundation that nothing could deter. No weather nor storm could make you shake. You would be unshakable, untethered by the wind and waves and storms of life, untethered by the lies of this world, the doctrines of this world. They will not sway you off. You will be on a firm, solid rock of a foundation. That's what Jesus is saying. Moving into chapter 8, he gives a parable about the kind of heart that receives this truth. The kind of heart that actually hears with a capital H this truth. It is a soft heart. Like soft soil. Good soil. That receives the truth. Keeps the truth. Guards the truth. Protects the truth. Understands the value of the truth. And then it bears fruit. Bears fruit of obedience. Chapter 9, the calling. The calling, namely that anyone who would hear him would also follow him in his death. Anyone who would actually hear Jesus correctly would also follow him in his death. They would deny themselves, take up their cross, and they would follow him. And we also see that Jesus sets on his descent to Jerusalem. He leaves his Galilean mission into Judea, and he starts his trek to the cross says he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, ready to die for his people. And throughout all of these chapters, throughout all of these chapters, Jesus is doing like miracle after miracle. Miracle after miracle. He's speaking unparalleled wisdom. He's calming storms, right? He's, he's raising the dead. He's healing the sick and the lame and the blind. And he's, he's sending his disciples out through all of Galilee and throughout all of Judea. So really none of this is in secret. None of this is in secret. It's public. For what I understand is about two years, Jesus has been putting on full display both sign and word and deed that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one, God in the flesh, the Son of Man. He's spoken. He's revealed himself. The truth has been spoken. And so we come to chapter 11. We come to chapter 11, and we're in this section, we're seeing that really it's decision-making time. I've shown you who I am, Jesus said, and it's time to make a decision. He's shown his power. He's called for repentance. He's called for faith. He's called for them to hear and to seek him. He's demonstrated to them their need for righteousness outside of themselves. It's decision-making time. Today, today, Insofar as I am accurate to the word of God, God is going to ask you, who do you say that I am? Who are you with? How will you respond to the truth? Insofar as I am accurate today from this pulpit, insofar as anyone who is up there is up here is accurate of the word of God to preach the word of God faithfully and accurately, you are hearing God's very words to you. And the question is, is how will you respond? How will you respond? And so let's pray and ask for hearts that respond well, rightly, before we go to God's word this morning. Father, you are glorious. I don't say that just to say it. I say that because you're worthy of my heart to believe that. You're worthy of my mind to recognize that you are glorious. You are majestic. Your name is worthy to be hallowed. Your name is worthy to be praised. 
You, O God, are worthy of all our attention this morning. Anything that our mind would wander to outside of Christ this morning would be a heinous act because you're worthy of our full attention. So incline our minds, O God. Incline our minds to your word. Soften our hearts. Open our ears. Bear fruit in us. Convict of sin. Grant repentance where it's needed. Encourage and build up your saints to continue to fight, to continue to run, to continue to chase after the calling at which you have called us to. Grant us the ability to to lay our life down for you. Kill, O God, in us any desires to believe the lies of this world. Open up, O God, the truth to us. Let the truth be so evident and so clear and so visible that the counterfeit truths of this world become evidently counterfeit. Only you, O God, can do this. And so we come to you, weak, carnal, but spirit-filled vessels ready to do what you have called us to do. So do it, O God, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, it should be in chapter 11, verse 14. Verse 14, he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts. And said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied, and he distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. And while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Oh, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That is God's word to us this morning. And so the main point of today's message is this. There is no neutrality with Christ. There is no neutrality with Jesus. This comes from obviously verse 23, where he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is a bold, in-your-face, black-and-white statement. This is is not Jesus mincing words. This is not the sayings of a weak, like hippie like Jesus that our American gospel has kind of conjured up, this really super nice, super politically correct Jesus who doesn't offend anyone. This is a black and white statement, a line in the sand statement, if you will. This is the reality of the world we live in. This is reality. 
created by the one true God who is now in the flesh, saying that there are only two people in the world. That is not an exaggeration. That is not an overstatement. There's only two people, two types of people. There are only two people groups. Two people groups, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of religion, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of beliefs, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. If you're a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, short, tall, thin, wide, there's only two groups. Those who are with Christ and those who are against him. Those who are with Christ and those who are against him. People. People who are by faith, trusting in Christ for salvation and advancing his kingdom or people who are against Christ, people who love the world, people who love themselves. They love their sin and trust only in themselves and advancing their kingdom. Every religion in the world is a self-righteous religion except for those who follow Christ. Every religion, every person, doesn't matter if your friend is an unbeliever and is really, really nice, he's against Christ. She is against Christ. That's what the scriptures say. That's it. It's two camps. This is the reality of our entire universe. It was true then. It's true now. You're either with Jesus or against him. So that's the truth that underlines this text. And as we, so we come to the portion of the story here, and the crowds, they're still gathering. They're still gathering like they always have been. People are still wondering. They're still seeking out to see who this Jesus is, understand this man, this miracle worker. They're seeking to understand. Some of them are there because they have truly seen the truth. They've heard the truth. It's pierced their hearts. They're bearing fruit. They're pursuing Christ. But others they're actually influenced by the pharisaical leadership of the time. They're not believing the truth. They're believing something different altogether. They're believing the dominant kind of worldview of the Jew at the time. And so we can kind of begin to see the tides are shifting. Thousands and thousands of people saying, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. And now some of them are saying, you're Satan, Jesus. You're Satan. Some of the tides are shifting. And so we find ourselves in verse 14 really in an ordinary day in the life of Jesus' ministry. It's an ordinary day. He's just casting out another demon, right? And as we know, right, nothing was new here. In fact, a lot of this perceptually was not really even new to the Jewish culture. What I mean by that is that they'd seen other people attempt to cast demons out. Exorcisms was a pretty common thing, at least the perceptions of them. They had Jewish leadership performing some type of exorcisms. Now, whether they were successful or not, they don't say. But they're used to the concept. We even see in Luke 10, uh, a disciple of Jesus that was not following along with them is exercising demons. So they're seeing this take place, but it says that they marveled, which I thought was pretty interesting. It says they, they marveled, the crowds marveled, or it says they were amazed. Why was that? Well, because Jesus did it in his own authority. Jesus did it in his own authority. Imagine, if you will, this kind of Jewish leader coming in with like a candle and some incense, and he's kind of creeping in because he's nervous of this crazy demon-possessed person. There, there's, he's burning uh, some incense and candle. He's kind of saying some chants or some prayers. He's trying to drive the demon out with some scripture or something. And Jesus comes up to a man who is mute and basically just says, get out, and it leaves. It commands the spirit with his own authority, and the spirit listens, the spirit trembles, and the spirit obeys. This is unprecedented in human history. It says that the crowds were amazed or in awe or wonder of what they just saw. But others in the crowd, not so much. Not so much. Verse 15 says that some in the crowd, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Even others to test him were seeking from him a sign from above. So this, the idea of this, this name, Beelzebul, it was, it was commonly understood as Lord of the demons or as Satan himself, but it was kind of a nickname for Satan. It meant Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung heap. It was a very derogatory name that they would use for Satan. 
And they were attributing that to the second person of the Godhead. They were calling him Lord of the dung heap. This was blasphemy to the highest extent. This is blasphemy to the highest extent. And the ones who sought a sign from him, they were no different than the ones calling him Beelzebul. They weren't innocent bystanders seeking more evidence. These weren't people that were just like, if I could just see a little bit more evidence, then, then I would believe you. Just give me a sign. No, no. Both of these groups had seen enough. Both of these groups have seen more than enough. Think about all that they've witnessed over the last two or so years. They had seen the love of Christ. They had seen the compassion of Christ. They'd seen his missional focus. They'd seen his meekness, his humility. Some even witnessed the baptism of Christ, the boldness of Christ. They had seen his power over nature, over illness. They had seen his power over death, and he raised the dead. They saw his power over leprosy, over blindness, over lameness. And even here, they have seen his power and authority over demonic forces. And they had the gall. They had the blindness, the deafness to say, prove to me you're not Satan. Give me a sign from above to show me that you were not from below. They were no different. They were no different. If you're wondering, you may be asking the question, how could anyone see Jesus? How could they witness his life, see the holiness of Christ? See just how other he is than everyone else in every perfect way. How could the Jews, especially, who have waited and waited and waited for their long awaited Messiah, see him finally and come to the conclusion that he is Beelzebul? By faith. They did it by faith. Yes, it is by faith that they came to this conclusion. Every action, every decision ever made by any person in any point in history has always been an act of faith. What you believe, what you trust in, it produces action. Faith in someone or something, faith in some sort of promise. There's always a promise attached to every action we take, and we are buying that promise when we take that action. Israel as a nation had believed the lie that was being spread by their leaders. They had placed their trust in the leaders in the world system of the time. And what I mean by that is that this is not the first time that Jesus has been referred to as Beelzebul. This wasn't a new concept. This is what was being perpetrated throughout all of Judea and all of Galilee. Just to give you a little bit of taste of that, we, we see this early in Jesus' ministry back in Matthew chapter 9, where he was casting out another mute demon. And the people were amazed. They'd never seen anything like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said at that point, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. That was one of the first accusations. Later in Matthew 10, you can see that this has been happening often. And Jesus says, look, if they're willing to say that I do this by the power of Satan, they're going to malign your name too. So it had become common practice enough for Jesus to say, look, they're doing this to me. They're going to do it to you too. And then in Matthew 12, it happens again. This was the talk of the town. This was the talk of the town. This was the talk about Jesus everywhere he went from the Jewish leaders. This is when they got on their soapbox and they were to talk about this man, Jesus, don't believe him. He does everything but the power of Beelzebul. This was the message of the leadership and the people of Israel had bought it. They bought it. We see this in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, where the people are saying, you're crazy, Jesus, you have a demon. Because he was saying some things that they didn't like. The people, now here in Judea, they have bought the lie of the leadership of Israel that was being spread all throughout Galilee, now is being spread all throughout Judea. This Jesus who speaks like no one else ever spoke and had done what no man had ever done, is seen by this generation as crazy, as out of his mind, Satan possessed. We've seen descriptions of demon-filled people. You remember back in Luke chapter 8, 
right? Naked, running around, crazy, convulsing, super strong, living amongst the graves, throwing themselves on the floor, out of control. And Jesus was none of these things. He was none of these things. He spoke with clarity. He spoke with power. He spoke with authority. He demonstrated love, compassion, hatred for sin. And they concluded that this power must be demonic. That was their conclusion. Or even worse, Satan himself. So point one. Point one today is this. Is that you are either believing a lie. I'm sorry, you're either believing the truth or believing the lie. You're either believing the truth or believing the lie. See, they were exposed to the truth. They were exposed to the truth. And those who are exposed to the truth have by faith, at this point, believed a lie. They loved the lie rather than the truth. They loved this lie about Jesus rather than the truth. They loved this lie over the word of the world, over the word of God. And in doing so, they have made a very, very dark exchange. They've made a very, very dark exchange. They have seen the truth, and they have suppressed the truth because the truth exposed their sins. The truth exposed their sin, and they loved their sin. You and I were no different. We loved our sin, too, before Christ got a hold of us. But they, they suppressed their, their truth because they loved their sin. They suppressed the truth because they loved their religion. They loved their self-righteousness which means that they are in absolute opposition to a message of repentance. They're in absolute opposition to the message of repentance. They can't fathom the need for it. They trust their heritage, their lineage, their works. And Jesus has been going from city to city and town to town, preaching a message of repent. The king is here. Repent. Trust in me, and then you will be able to enter into the kingdom with me. And they hated Jesus for that. They hated Jesus for that. So no matter what evidence or whatever sign they saw, they would never believe this message. They would suppress the truth. They would see it clear as day, but they would suppress the truth because they loved their sin. They loved their righteousness, their self-righteousness, their self-saving religion. They loved it too much. Romans 1, 18 speaks of this. Speaking of all mankind, for all times, this is a very... Again, black and white truth. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. They knew what they saw. They knew that the king was before them, but they hated him because of unrighteousness, because they love their sin, because of unbelief. But unbelief is never neutral. Anytime you unbelieve something, you believe something else instead. You're always believing something. And when you do that, you make an exchange of truth for something else. In fact, Romans 1 ends this way when it says, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's exactly what's going on here. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, this created man-made religion. They worshiped that rather than the creator himself, rather than Jesus Christ himself. The creator was in their midst. He was before them. The creator of the whole world was in their midst. They saw the truth. They saw this long-awaited Messiah, and they called him Satan. Anytime we hear about what people in the Bible are doing wrong, we should never say, I would never do that. I would never do that. May we be careful. May we be careful as people on like this side of the cross, on this side of Scripture, on this side of so much truth. You have access to this on your phones, over a thousand different versions probably, a thousand different ways to get access to God's Word. We are so exposed to the truth, week in and week, week out. May we be careful not to suppress it. To suppress it, to not let it change us. To not let it affect us. 
We should be like good soil. Especially those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we especially should be more than anyone good soil, hearts that have been softened by the Spirit, softened by the conviction of sin. We should be like good soil. When we hear the truth of God's word, we should be more than anyone ready to latch onto it, meditate on that truth, pray about it, and plead with God to let it bear fruit. More than anyone. See, when you hear truth from God's word, when you hear truth in your quiet time, when you listen to the word sung and preached on Sundays or on Wednesdays, you're always presented with a, with a crossroad of faith. You're always presented with a crossroad of faith. You are either going to believe it and bear fruit, or you're going to suppress it and leave the room unchanged. Those are your only two choices. You will either hear it, receive it, believe it, or you will leave the room unchanged. You will either love the truth, which will cause you to hate the lies of this world that are kind of all around us all the time, that the truth is up, is up against, or you'll hold on to some lie. You'll hold on to some lie that the truth is, that this truth is rubbing up against, and then doing so, you'll suppress the truth. It's, only the, it's the only two options. And so here's the thing. When we, when we hear the truth of God's word and suppress it, then you are believing the lie of Satan. It's not just any random lie. It's not a lie you gave yourself. There's only two teams, remember? So you're believing the lie of Satan over the truth of God's word. That's no different than calling God a liar. It's no different than calling God a liar and calling Satan the truth. It is blasphemy. It is a dark exchange when we do that. It is a dark exchange every time we do that. We are no different than the Israelites when we sin or when we disobey. When we hear the call of God to repent and we say, eh, not today, maybe tomorrow. When we hear the command of Christ to go and we remain still. We're no different than Adam and Eve who believed Satan over the word of God in those moments. Yes, the Christian life is a process. The Christian life is a process, a process of growing in our faith. Growing in our faith as we are continuously exposed to the truth of God's word. We're growing in our trust of God's word and we're turning our back on the lies of this world that we're so prone to believe. It is a process of growing in that. But in the moments when we are not living like good soil, when we're not kind of receiving the truth and treasuring the truth and, and praying and just wanting it to change us and leaving them, we're suppressing the truth, is in those moments, it's good to understand. We have to understand this, that we are not living in a neutral place in those moments, but we are believing something else. You've never suppressed the truth of God without believing something else is better. And when you do that, you are standing on dark, satanic ground. It is not a good place to be. But Jesus is gracious. Jesus is so gracious. He's gracious with us. He's patient with us. And he was gracious with them. Let's look at his response. Let's look at his response. He's so gracious as he begins to defend himself and then share the gospel. He defends himself and then he shares the gospel. You see, this defense that Jesus gives is probably the most loving thing he could do in this moment. To defend the truth of Christ is the most loving thing you can do for anyone. It's the most loving thing you can do for anyone. That's exactly what he did. He defended the truth about himself. Right? Think about it. This, like we said, this was unprecedented blasphemy. Jesus, as the creator of the whole universe, holy, righteous, and good, had every right to demolish them and annihilate them in this moment. At worst. At best, he could have just turned his back and let them go in their lives without making any defense. He had every right to judge them. What does he do? 
What does he do? He gives them his word again. He says, hear me at least one more time. Listen, be careful how you listen. I'm going to give you the truth again. It's so loving. It's so loving. First, we see in verse 17 through 18 that he reasons with them. He begins to reason with them that this, this is really just illogical. In 17 through 18, he's just arguing that this is just silly. This is so illogical. Since, since the fall of man, the, the war has really been raging, and Satan has been working on the deception of the nations and has been very, very, very successful. Very successful. In fact, only Israel in all of history was set apart by God unto himself, and even they fell to his deceptions. So why in the world would Satan now, in this moment in history, for the first time, work against himself? Jesus makes this axiomatic statement that no kingdom divided against itself can stand. So it's true for all kingdoms. It's true for all organizations. It's true for all systems. Any system, organization, corporation, religion that is not one-minded on one purpose but divided against itself will not stand. So different for Satan's kingdom. This accusation just doesn't even make sense. Doesn't even make any sense. Jesus puts that away. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, now he says, by what standard? By what standard do you say that this is satanic power? What's your authority? He holds them to an authority on their claim. What is your authority on this? How, how are you differing between the power of God and the power of Satan? What's your authority here? He says, even your own claim to cast demons out. Let them be your authority. What would they say? By what power do they do it in? To which, of course, they're not going to say Beelzebul. And they're not going to say God because they'd be proving Jesus' point. So Jesus got them there too. Third, we see in verse 20 through 23 that Jesus now gives them the truth. So he reasons he defends, and then he gives them the truth. He says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There it is. There's the truth. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? The kingdom of God has come upon you, he says. This, this phrase, the finger of God, it's actually found in Exodus 8. He's referring to a, a passage in Exodus 8 when these false magicians in Egypt, they were trying to do the things that Moses and Aaron were doing and they were unable to do it. And they finally just looked and said, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. We can't perform these things. Just like the Jewish exorcists couldn't do it. They were like false magicians. And now the true prophet had come. The true Messiah had come. And he was able to do what no one else could do. The only possible conclusion that this is the power of God. This is the finger of God. In Matthew 12, he actually says that this is the finger of the Holy Spirit. This is the finger of the Holy Spirit. And what did the finger of God do? What did the hand of God do? In Egypt, it judged. It judged Egypt. It judged the captor and it freed the captives. The finger of God, the hand of God, it says in Exodus chapter 7, just before that, God is telling Moses that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. That's what the finger of God did. It, it judged the captors and it freed the captives. So point two, you were either on mission with the king or on mission with Satan. You're either on mission with the king or you're on mission with Satan. Jesus is saying that the king is here. The king is here. Redemption is here. The kingdom is in your midst. I am gathering people that are captives to the lies of Satan, and I am setting them free. I am setting them free from his lies and bringing them out of his dark domain and into my kingdom of light and truth. I'm setting them free with the truth. For eons and eons, Satan has been a strong man. Jesus continues. Satan has been a strong man. He's been gathering armor which are people who believe his lies, 
They're bought into his lies and has been very, very protective of them. In fact, no one in history has been able to disturb him, but now someone stronger is here. Someone stronger is here, and he's saying, I am taking over. I'm taking over. Salvation is here, and you are either with me, or you're with the enemy. You are either with me, or you are with the enemy. You are either with Jesus or against him. You're either with Egypt or with God. You're either with the captor or with the redeemer. You're either with Satan or with me. You're either with freeing captives or keeping the captive captive. Your mission as a human being is defined by one of those two things. You're either freeing captives or you're keeping the captives captive. There is no neutrality with Jesus. That hit me hard. There is no neutrality with Jesus. There's no middle road. There's no middle road. There is only a wide road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. Those are our two options. The biggest lie of the enemy today is that there's this kind of new middle road. There's this middle road that you can just kind of coast down on. You don't have to go down the crazy worldly road of you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you don't have to go crazy Christian. There's this new kind of middle road. Jesus is saying there's no such thing. There is no such thing. Following Jesus Christ is radical. Your friends who are nice people but indifferent towards Christ, they are against him. They are just as judged as those who call him Satan. They're just as judged by God as the worst Satanist. They're in the same camp. Professing Christians that call Jesus their savior but are in no way at all submissive to him as king, they are against him. They're preaching a false gospel. There is no middle road with him Against him, friend, enemy. Jesus says, if you are with me, you will gather with me, which means you will be on mission with me. But if you are against me, you will propagate a lie, and those watching or hearing you, they will scatter from me. So you're either gathering with me or you're scattering people from me. You're bringing people into the light of the truth or you're casting them further into darkness. Those are your two options. That's the truth. You're either making disciples or you're being disobedient. You're either making disciples or you're being disobedient. What will you do with that truth? That's the truth. It's receive it or suppress it time. It's time to receive that truth or suppress it. Make your choice. Moms and dads, you are demonstrating to your kids by your life and by your choices whose team you are on. And you are either discipling your kids or you're being disobedient. You're either pointing them to Christ, not just in word, but in lifestyle and choices and decisions and counsel and in wisdom and pointing them to the scriptures and to Christ or you're being disobedient. Employees, you are demonstrating to your coworkers by your life and your choices. What you proclaim with your mouth, you're, you're proclaiming who you belong to, Christ or Satan. You're proclaiming that and you are either gathering in your workplace or you're being disobedient. Students, same thing. In your schools, you're being obedient to gather or disobedient to scatter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are participating in the advancement of the gospel and gathering of the people through the local church or we're being disobedient. Black and white. 
plain and simple. No matter what you do, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you believe, you are sharing a good news of sorts. You are sharing a gospel. It is either the true gospel or a false gospel. It is either a true hope in Jesus Christ or a false hope. What do you proclaim with your life? What do you proclaim with your mouth, with the things that you buy, with the, how you use your money, how to you use your time? That which you invest in is what you declare to the world as most valuable. And they will, if they see you and they see your joy in that, they'll say, that's where the gospel is. That's where hope is. That's where joy is found. That's what life is about. Look at him. He looks so happy. He's got his vacations. He's got his cards. He's got his money. He's got his house. That's the good news. You're either propagating a true gospel or a false gospel. Not just in actions, but in the things that you say. We are called to preach the truth to people. We are called to be pillars of truth to people. Preach the word to your children. Preach the word to your friends at your schools and in your workplace. Preach the word to them. Do not let them think that anything that they are finding hope in that you know to be false, don't let that go by the wayside. They are scattering and you're called to gather them. Jesus continues. Jesus continues. He's speaking of the nation of Israel. He's speaking of this particular generation those who would not receive their Messiah. And Jesus is giving us some kind of insight into why that is. Why? If you're here with us today and you are, you're putting your trust in your own works or good deeds or hoping maybe that even somehow that even just being here is kind of just scoring some points with God today, I want you to listen to Jesus' words here. I want you to listen to this parable that he gives this is for you. This is for all of us. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit comes out of that person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they come in and live there. And the last condition of that person becomes worse than the first. Just some brief context real quick. Okay, back in the days of the kings of Israel. Back in the days of the kings of Israel, Israel was a, a nation that very seldomly worshipped God as they were supposed to. Very seldomly. In fact, they were always choosing other gods. They were worshipping pagan gods. They were doing what the pagan... Uh, Nations did and worshipped, and they would make even child sacrifices. There was all kinds of heinous things that they were doing. It was completely pagan. And it was this practice of worshipping other gods that got them exiled into Babylon. Now, as God has promised, you remember from our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, he brought them out of Babylon. He brought them out of Babylon, set them up as a nation again in which there was a great repentance there was a great repentance, but quickly again, we see that the nation was disobedient to God. And so this pharisaical system was established. This pharisaical system was established because they feared exile instead of fearing God. They feared the punishment of God more than they feared and loved God himself. And they began putting these rules and walls up around the commands of God setting big burdens on people of Israel, saying, don't break these commands or else God will exile us again. And so it kind of worked. It kind of worked, sort of, right? This, this demon, if pagan worship left, and they, they cleaned themselves up. They cleaned themselves up. They got everything swept and put in order. They got rules, they got regulations, they got laws, and they're following them. But they had no righteousness. They had no real righteousness because they had no real faith in God. They had their rules. They had their works. They had their deeds, but no faith. They had no love for God. They had transitioned from pagan idolatry to religious idolatry. A great possession, if you will, had taken over. A great deception 
had taken over in the nation of Israel. And this is the deception of self-righteousness. This deception of looking in the mirror and saying, I'm pretty good. Look, everything's swept and put in order. Everything is as it should be. This is the great deception of moral reform. The great deception of moral reform. The great deception that you can actually clean yourself up. Clean your life up. Get yourself together. And then, and then God will love you. If I would just clean myself up, then God will accept me. You know what? Like the Israelites, you might succeed. You may actually clean yourself up, but God will not accept you based off what you do. He will not accept you based off on how good your works are or based on you showing up at church today or based on how much you read your Bible or how much you do anything. In fact, it says here in verse 26 that the state of the person who cleans themselves up may be now worse than they were before they did it. They may actually be worse off. They're in a worse place. Point three, you are either empty or filled. You are either empty or filled. I want you to hear this. Believer or unbeliever alike, no matter how much you get your life together, no matter how many bad sins you put away, if you are not trusting in Christ for salvation, in Him alone, you are still against Him. Enemy. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how many sins you put away. If you're putting your faith in those things, you are against Christ. To clean the place up and leave it empty only provides a nicer place for the demons to come back to. They're not going to redestroy it. They're going to enjoy this nice place, this cleaned up state. And they're going to show you just how good you are. Can you hear the lies? Can you hear the lies of the deceiver? You've cleaned yourself up. He's, they come to you and they, they come in full force and say, oh, look how good you are now. Look how good you are now. Look how good you've become. Man, you've really got it all together. You've got it all together. Repent of sin? What sin? You're good. You're good. You don't need to repent of anything. Trust in Christ for salvation? Say from what? Salvation from what? Why? You're, you're doing good. He, He's forgotten about all those bad things. He's just seeing you now and just, just saying, oh, I'm so glad that I, this person is doing so good now. Look at what he's done. No, cleaning yourself up is not the answer. Cleaning yourself is, is not the answer. You must be born again. That's the answer. You must be born again. You must be born from above, meaning you must be filled with the Spirit of God. You cannot clean yourself up and leave everything empty. You must be given a new heart. You must become a new person altogether. You must be given a new heart that loves God and not yourself. You must be given a thirst for righteousness because you know you don't have any of your own. Not a thirst for self-praise, but a thirst for salvation because you're desperate for it. Not trying to earn it yourself. Hear me when I say this. God deserves all the glory, all of it. He deserves all the glory for your salvation and anything outside of giving him the full glory and taking it for yourself is absolute idolatry. I don't care if you're saying, oh, it's all but this. No, he gets all of it. Or it's idolatry. And the state of that person who is trusting in one fraction of their good works, who is trusting in themselves, is worse off than they were before they ever cleaned their life up. It's much harder. It's much harder for that person to repent and see a need for a Savior when they see how good they are or how good we are. So if you're here and you're thinking that being here at this service or being a part of a Christian family, or putting your way, your sinful behavior, or somehow appeasing to God, Jesus is saying, repent of that. Turn away from that thinking. Transfer your trust from yourself to Christ. Transfer your trust from your works to His works. 
Be with him, not against him. Be filled with his spirit, not self-clean. You want to be clean and against him or filled and with him? I am so thankful that God did not let me clean myself up because I tried. Oh, I tried a lot. Back before I knew Christ, I knew a lot about him, but I did not know him. And when I started to feel that conviction of my sin, I made every effort to clean myself up. By his grace, he wouldn't let me. I kept failing over and over and over and over again. It didn't matter how hard I tried, how many like companions I got in this with me say, okay, help me out. We got to clean our act together. We got to start going to church more. We got to stop going to the club. We got to start doing all this stuff. And then that weekend I would be partying harder than I did the last weekend. I kept falling and I kept going to bed at night just feeling just ridiculously guilty because I knew I could not change myself. And that was the grace of God. If that's you, it's the grace of God. You can't clean yourself. Stop trying. Put your trust in the Savior. Plead with him to change you. We just spent eight weeks on prayer. Pray that he would give you the spirit. Change your heart. Give you new desires for him. He will not deny you that gift. It's a bad place to be self-clean. And even as believers, even as believers, we are tempted to believe that our sanctification is done by the flesh. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of that and rely on the work of the Spirit to illumine the gospel, to illumine the glory of Christ to us. We need that every single day. We're too prone to believe the lies of this world. We need the truth of the gospel every single day. We need hearts that believe it and respond to it. Final point. Final point. You are either blessed or cursed. You are either blessed or cursed. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and follow it. True blessing is not based on anything really earthly at all. It's not based on anything earthly at all. It's not based on family. It's not based on children. It's not based on the ones you have or the ones you don't have. It's not based on rule keeping. True blessing or true happiness or true joy comes from having the truth firmly planted in your heart. Coming full circle here. True blessing is having the truth of Jesus Christ. It's having the truth of God's word in you. The truth of God's plan for you to gather with him. That's blessing. Word of God. Word of God. Truth of God. Truth of Jesus Christ firmly planted in your heart, guarding you against the lies of the world, guarding you against the lies of Satan, keeping you from blasphemy, keeping you from self-righteousness, keeping you from all of those things, bearing fruit in obedience to God's command to go make disciples, living, like truly living under the sovereign rule of God, submissive to King Jesus, trusting in him. That is the person who is blessed. That is the person who is blessed. Do you believe it? Are you suppressing it? question isn't, what are you going to do with your life after today? It's not, what are you going to do with your life? How, okay, I got to leave here and I got to clean myself up. You're not listening. You're not listening. It's not, how can I be better or become more upright or more religious or fix myself up? The question is, is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Is he king or not? What will you do with the truth that you have heard week in and week out? How will you, how will I respond? How will we as a body respond? You're either with him or against him. You're either with him or against him. You're either submissive to the king or you're against the king. 
He has come. Christ has come. God incarnate has come, and he is taking over Satan's domain, and you are either gathering with him or you are scattering. You're either hearing the truth and obeying or believing the lie. You're either blessed or not blessed. And on the last day, on the last day, when King Jesus returns to lay claim to his kingdom, you will either be in it or not. You will either be in it or cast into the lake of fire. There is no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There's no neutrality. Only one thing in this life really matters at all. That is, who do you say Jesus is? And how will you respond to that truth? Let's pray.